that people can be putting your faith in you. Similarly, the lockdowns in China and the war in Ukraine, Lord, I pray for the believers in those communities. I pray for your spirit to move and bring people to repentance, Lord. I also lift up the physical needs of people in this body and, emo and also healing emotional needs. And for physical needs, I'm thinking of uh, um, Pastor Tom Hovasal's wife, Carrie. Lord, I just pray you, you heal her and just be with them. And I also lift up all of our, our pastors for, for Chad, for Kevin, for Shane, for Brad. And Lord, we just pray that um, also our staff here at the church and our children's ministries program, our youth ministries, all the things that we're doing, Lord, I just pray that um, the intent and the purpose can be clear that we're trying to glorify you in all that we do, Lord. And I just pray that things will go smoothly next Sunday with the change in, uh, in services. And just help us to be focused on you and all that we do. And and also uh, pray for the offering that we're about to take, Lord, that um, the resources that we have are yours and that you can use them to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. So what would it have been like to have been around Jesus? What was his personality like? What did his voice sound like? Those are just the kind of questions that one Professor named Scott McKnight at Northern Baptist Seminary wanted his students to think about. So every year at the beginning of the year, he gives a test out to his students. And it's got questions like, was Jesus moody? Did he ever get nervous? Is, was he an introvert or was he the life of the party? There's 24 questions. And then those questions are followed by a second set of questions that are tweaked just a little bit. But those questions are about the student. And those are questions they ask about themselves, an answer about themselves. And McKnight's not the only person that has given out this exam. A lot of professionals out there have given this exam out of what do you think Jesus was like, followed by a set of questions pertaining to the person. What are you like? The results are fascinating, and they're remarkably consistent. Because the results always indicate that everyone thinks that Jesus is just like them. McKnight said that the test results suggest that even though we like to think that we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. And that personality questionnaire confirms something that philosopher of Voltaire said hundreds of years ago, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. We tend to think this way, and if I let my um, mind wander about Jesus, if I'm just going down the road and I'm just listening to music, I think, well, well what would Jesus be listening? Well, Jesus would be listening to the same music I listen to. Jesus would be spending his time the way that Chad likes to spend his time. Jesus would spend all his time Maybe infinity scrolling on their phone as they call it on social media. Well, of course, Jesus would spend his time this way. He'd watch what I watch, listen to what I listen to, read the books that I read. Obviously, there's a danger to this. 
because then where is the challenge? See, if I'm under the belief that God would spend his money the way I spend mine, he'd spend his time the way that I spend mine, and the more he looks like me, the more I find that I'm just worshiping myself. And to follow Christ, to be devoted to him, means my own wants and my desires, what the old Puritans would call our affections, will become more and more like Christ and not Christ becoming more and more like me. So what I want to talk about this morning is, is, um, is being a devoted disciple of Christ. And how can I be sacrificially devoted to Christ as my desires need to become more and more like His? And the passage we're going to look at comes from John chapter 12. We'll be looking at John chapter 12. I'm actually going back and picking up some of those passages that I had skipped over as we were going into Easter. This morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 12, and we'll start with verse 1, read down through verse 11. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Keep in mind that in the previous chapter, Lazarus had just been raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You may be seated. Jesus is our living hope. And one of my favorite definitions of hope is that it is expectation plus desire. It's something that I want to happen, but I don't just want it to happen. I believe that it is going to happen. The fact that we worship a resurrected Christ means we have a hope that we too will be resurrected in the same way that He will or was. And we have a desire to be with Him. For now, I'm satisfied to be here enjoying the forgiveness that He's given me enjoying a walk with Him, but it's my hope and expectation that someday I'll be with Him for all eternity in heaven. And this morning, I want to talk about our subject this way. First, we'll see that faithful disciples desire sacrifice for Christ. We'll look at first Mary. She was the faithful disciple here. Then we'll take a look at Judas and see that false disciples sacrifice for their own desire. And finally, we'll talk about three ways to be sacrificially devoted to Jesus Christ. But first, let's talk about Mary's 
sacrificial devotion. Let's start with her. And after having just raised Lazarus from the dead, the first two verses share that Jesus had gone back to Bethany, where the miracle had been performed. And there at the table, we have Jesus, we have Lazarus, we have the two sisters of Lazarus, and we also have the disciples. We find out later on that obviously Judas was there among the disciples. And this was like a dinner in the honor of Christ for resurrecting their brother. Life was very hard for two women at that time. They needed a man typically to be the earner of income. So Jesus had resurrected their brother and they had much to be thankful for. Martha's serving, Lazarus reclining. And at this point, it seems that Lazarus has become somewhat of a celebrity. People had heard that he had died. He was in the tomb for three days. Then he was brought back to life. And people wanted to see this resurrected person. I mean, what kind of questions can you imagine? People would want to ask Lazarus, what was it like? What did you see? And then look at verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Mary performs this very unusual act. It was pure nard. Sometimes they would take this, it's an extract from a plant, it's actually in India, they would trade and they would get it. But it was pure nard, sometimes they would mix it with other stuff, so it wasn't pure, but this was uh, very... Um, pungent as well, and uh, had a wonderful perfume to it. And just how much did Mary sacrifice in order to do this? And one question you've got to ask, well, just what value did this perfume have? And, and of course, the extravagance of the gift is really the problem at hand. The gift itself was the equivalent of about one year's salary. So, the average Jew would earn about one denarii, one denarius a day. And if you calculate, if you figure in that the, um, the minimum wage in Wyoming right now is $7.25 per hour, that would annually equate to $17,400 that this woman just poured out of this, this jar. No, I didn't do that math in my head. I already had it, I already had it done. pouring it out in just a couple of minutes, and that's at minimum wage. If you look at the average salary in the U.S. in a year, she just poured out about $65,000 in just a moment on Jesus. This was simply in an effort to cherish and honor Christ. It's breathtaking. I mean, come on, I mean... Mary, weren't you thinking about what you were doing? You could have poured out half. You could have taken the other half. You could have invested it. You could put in an, an endowment or a trust fund or something like that. Some great stock somewhere, earned interest. Wait a second, Mary. The entire bottle, you broke the end off the alabaster jar and poured it out. And she wasn't just sacrificing security and finances. She would have sacrifice social standing. See, women didn't just let their hair down in front of people. That was intended to be done just with the husband. This is a little bit scandalous, but see, she trusted the people around her would understand what it was she was doing. 
So she was willing, even in that sense, to go against the social norms, to lose social standing, to do what she did, to let down her hair. She's acting with abandon, extravagant abandon. You know, I believe that she thought to herself, what would be the most extravagant way that I could worship or ascribe worth to Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, right here and now? Knowing that this was a time-sensitive opportunity that she had. This is the example of a faithful disciple, one that really believes. And I don't know to what extent Mary really understood who Jesus was. I don't know that she fully understood that he was about to die and about to be resurrected. But this is what God calls you and I too and no less, to give it all up to follow him. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. You see, the Roman means of crucifixion, when someone was about to die on the cross, they would carry that cross all around Rome. It was a way of saying, look, Rome, you were right and I was wrong. Jesus is saying, I want you to take up your cross, and by doing so, you're confessing that the way you did it was the wrong way, and the way you're taking up now is the right way. But I will tell you, it will cost you. Are you willing to give it all up? But you know, when we really get to who Jesus is and what kind of life he offers us and his resurrection and giving us purpose and what he did in eternity with him and after we've suffered a little while that we are going to be with him, are we ever really giving up or sacrificing anything? I don't think so. I think for the most part, Jesus is graciously inviting us to drop burdens. But when, then we come to this comment by Judas in response to what it was Mary had done. We see it in verses 4 through 6, Judas denounces what Mary had done. He asks, look, why didn't we sell this and give it to the poor? I mean, that kind of makes sense, a little bit plausible on one level, right? They had poor among them. On the surface, it seems good, but then in reality, look at what it says down in verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Hindsight's always 2020. So what is going on with Judas? I mean, this passage, John called him a disciple of Jesus. Jesus had called him to himself. He'd been walking with Jesus. He'd been sitting at the feet of Christ, learning from Jesus. What in the world went through Judas's heart and mind that he would now stoop to this? The Scriptures are largely silent on the why. It could have been maybe he was crafting a Jesus in his own image. Maybe Jesus wasn't living up to the Jesus he thought he ought to be. Remember, there were expectations that when the Messiah came, he would overthrow the Roman Empire. That, that Judah would be restored to former glory. And when it looked like maybe this isn't how this is going to go down, they may be having second thoughts. He may be having second thoughts. Wait a second. 
How am I going to keep myself secure? What am I going to do here? It's hard to say. It could have been just greed, but for whatever reason, he's not buying into the mission. He seems to be receding from the faith. And now he's not acting in the best interest of Jesus or the poor, but he's acting in his own self-interest, which is a nice way of saying he's idolizing himself. And this is one of Satan's greatest schemes. You see, I, I remember when the, uh, the talk shows back in the 80s started having these Satan worshipers coming on. They were kind of creepy, and they wore black, and sometimes their eyebrows were creepy looking. They were just creepy looking. And I think that probably Satan cares less about those Satan worshipers than anybody else. Okay, fine, we've got them buffaloed. Let's move on. Because Satan does not care who or what we are worshiping as long as it's not God. Dennis Kinslaw, who was the president of Asbury Seminary, he recognized that. He said, Satan disguises submission to himself under the ruse of personal sovereignty, that you're the one in charge. Satan wants you to think you're the one in charge. It's your stuff. You do with it whatever you want to. He never asked us to become his servants. Never once did the serpent say to Eve, I want to be your master. He went on to say this, the shift in commitment is never from Christ to evil. It is always from Christ to self. And instead of his will, self-interest now rules and what I want reigns. And this is the essence of sin. I'll never forget something um, that was told to me. This was at my previous church. I was talking to a lady there who, uh, she was very affluent. Her husband was one of the premier spine surgeons in the state of West Virginia. And she said, you know, Chad, Anytime I start out my day with how can I make myself comfortable, I know I'm getting off the wrong start. When I start out my day saying it's about me, I know that I'm starting out in the wrong place. She had a lot more insight than me into this. This is what Judas did. And this is the sign of a false disciple. And false disciples will sacrifice for their own desires. And this is what I battle. I'm selfish. I want what I want. And we'll always be tempted to hold back time and talent and treasure for our own self-interest. No, God, it's not yours. It's mine. I'll never forget being part of a discussion at a church. They had some savings, and they were trying to figure out, well, what should we do with these savings? And somebody suggested, well, we could, we could invest it over here rather than just sitting in a savings account. We could invest it. And then somebody immediately spoke up and said, wait a minute. This is God's money. Who do you think you are investing it? And I'll never forget the pastor. He had this answer right on the tip of his tongue. He said, hold on. Whose money is sitting in your bank account right now? Whose money is sitting in your 401k right now? Where did that come from? See, it wasn't us who decided to have the mind that we have that God gave us, to be born at the right time in history that we were born in, to be born in the right country where you could do things with money that you could never have done earlier. Everything I have should have a sign that says, given by God, owned by God, to be used for the purposes of God. It's not my car, it's not my house, it's not my money. I want my own stuff. I like to acquire my own things. And I'm not saying don't, ha I'm not saying don't have 
a 401k. I'm not saying don't do it, but are you willing to let it go? Or is it set up a place in your heart? Are you more fearful about losing some of that than the kingdom of God going on? I'll tell you, my wife is much more giving than I am. She's much more willing to let things go than I am. She teaches me often about what it means to be generous. And not to mention we hold back our talents from the body of Christ. When that happens, we all lose. The body loses because we need you. You see, you are the only you there is. And we need you serving. We need your help. If we want the kingdom of Christ to move forward in Sheridan, it will take every single one of us using what we have to do that. You have your sphere of influence that I don't have. All of you have your own spheres of influence. Are you making Christ known there? Or as we sang when we were kids, are you hiding your light under a bushel? In Luke 8, Jesus said, For nothing is hidden. He's saying this to his disciples. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. The disciples were to make known what Jesus was telling them. The followers uh, were to consider carefully or take care how they listened. If they heard and responded with genuine belief, then they would receive more truth. If they did not receive what they heard, they would lose it. It reminds me of something that I had read about uh, Dwight Moody. He was a, a greatly used evangelist. You've heard of Moody University. It was named after uh, Dwight L. Moody. But when he was getting started out in pastoring, he used a lot of really bad grammar as he was preaching. I, I can relate. And uh, after a sermon, somebody came up to him one time and said, you know, you really said that the wrong way. You, know, you use this word when you should have used that. And he had a very interesting response he said, I'm using all the grammar I know for God. What are you doing with the grammar you know? You know, I don't think there's going to be, I don't believe there will be regret in heaven, but if there is, it would simply be that we didn't do more for Christ. Anything we selfishly hold back, time, love, forgiveness, things that we could have lavishly poured out that we didn't. So we don't want to be these false disciples. We don't want to hold back. We don't want to in any way uh, adopt the habits that, that Judas had, being devoted to our, more, our own desires more than Christ. And instead, how can we be sacrificially devoted to Jesus? How can we de be devoted to Him? And first of all, I want to suggest by being attentive to your own desire. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean... Trying to get all your desires satiated. Like, I don't mean because we have selfish desires. Rather, I'm saying, watch out for what it is that you desire. If we're not careful, we'll end up with what Augustine, an old guy from way back, what he called disordered loves. And at the age of 19, he was listening to a uh, a dialogue from a philosopher named Cicero. And Cicero said that every person sets out to be happy, but the majority are thoroughly wretched. He went on to say no one dreams about 
growing up one day to be miserable and, and wretched and discontent and having all kinds of frustrations and unfulfilled longings. And Augustine set out to discover, well, why is it that most people are so discontent in life? And his conclusion was, he said, our lives, for most of us, are out of order. He said, we have disordered loves. He was convinced that what defines a person more than anything is what they love. He said, when we ask if someone is a quote-unquote good person, what we are asking is not what they believe or what they hope for, but rather what they love. He said that we consider human virtues like courage and honesty. He said those are essentially forms of love. Courage is loving your neighbor's well-being more than your own well-being. Your own safety. Honesty is loving someone to tell them the truth, even if it's at a disadvantage to you. Even if that person doesn't like you after you tell them the truth. And Jesus explained in 10, Luke 10, 27, the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Sin, on the other hand, Augustine said, is ultimately a lack of love for God or your neighbor. He said, in essence, sin is disordered love. It's true. It's when we love less important things more than we ought. And then what can happen? This is what I know. I can love this thing over here, and then I, get, I can find myself fearful and anxious. Well, what if I lose it? Um. I remember uh, at my last church, there was a, a very gracious family that let us use a vacation condo. And before I left the church, I was so afraid, well, what if we can't use it anymore? Should that ever be influencing decisions that I'm making? No. That's what makes us fearful and anxious and, re and fearful of rejection and loss is when we have these disordered loves. Because we can never lose Christ. We can never lose Him. This will lead you off the path of being sacrificially devoted to Christ. So look out for what you desire. And then secondly, be generous with your finances. Be generous with your finances. It's always dangerous for the pastor to bring up being generous with finances. How might God want you to use your resources for his kingdom? Mary took advantage of a very short-time-sensitive opportunity that she had to show her love and devotion to Jesus sacrificially. And guess what? Every opportunity that we have to give is also a short, time-sensitive opportunity. Something else that needs to be said is, you know, it's wonderful to, to do something and say something nice for someone after they pass away, but it's also really important to say those things to someone while they're living. I love eulogizing people, but much better to make those things known to somebody, known to someone while they're living. Maybe you need to tell some that to someone before it's too late. According to verse 7, Jesus viewed her act as a pre-anointing for his death and burial. Though Mary, she may not have had that in view. If she did, it could be why she didn't uh, go to the tomb with the other women to anoint his body after the fact. But what opportunity do you have that's unique and time-sensitive? Next week, we'll be taking up uh, our Benevolence Fund. We do that every Sunday uh, after we have communion. That's an opportunity for you to help the poor, not only in our church, but also out in the community. 
Uh, and if you've been there before, this may motivate you. You know what? I know what it's like to, to need and not have. So you can give to that benevolence fund. That's how we meet needs within our body at First Baptist and others out in the community as well. Another old guy, John Chrysostom, he was another church father. He said, things themselves do not remain, but their effects do. Therefore, we should not be mean and calculating with what we have, but give with a generous hand. Look at how much people give to players and dancers. This was like 1,800 years ago. Why not give just as much to Christ? And then finally, be sacrificially devoted by simply loving people. By simply loving people. What Mary did was supremely an act of love. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that they'll know you're Christians by your love. In Romans 5, 8, but God chose his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, at a minimum, means being present with people. You know what? No one should ever step in to this gathering of Christians with a desire that someone take an interest in them and walk away empty, untouched, unspoken to. Now, granted, everybody also has a responsibility to hang around for a minute. There's always danger in a, in a larger church to flash in the back and flash out again before anybody can say hi to you. It means sacrificing your time to show someone else they matter. You know, it means sacrificing your comfort to, to even get up and come to church. But you know what? If God were to show up and speak to you directly and said, I want you to do one, th- I've got one thing I need you to do. He said, I want you to attend church. You'd be relieved that that was all he asked you to do. Getting here and being here is a sacrifice of your time and your energy. But it's also a demonstration of devotion to God. What opportunity will God put in front of you in the coming weeks to show your devotion to Him? You know, it's about helping the poor, yes, but it's not just about helping the poor. So take advantage of your time-sensitive opportunities to show devotion to Christ. You won't have them forever. Our time here is very, very short. And you won't in any way regret what you do for Christ now. I just want to close with um, this picture. This is called Christ of the Abyss. And this particular one is in Genoa, Italy. There's also one in, there's three of these. One's in Key Largo down in Florida. And it's meant to bless divers as they enter into the water. They'll see Jesus. They'll realize what a blessing it is that he's created Uh, this undersea world for them to explore and and hopefully to pray and and maybe stay safe. But after 50 years underwater, uh, it took a lot of toll on the statue. It gathered barnacles and uh, seaweed and began looking less and less like the original. So a few years back, they raised it up out of the water. They cleaned it up, repaired it, and now it's back. It's on a new pedestal. It's restored to original beauty. And as I'm looking at this, thinking, you know, that's what I need to do with Jesus. Bring him up from a deep place so I can clean off barnacles of neglect, repair damage that I may have done to our relationship. And this passage, looking at what Mary did, should make each of us search our own souls to see whether or not we treasure our crucified and risen Lord as we should. 
And I think John put this right before the passion stories of the Christ, right before his, the upper room discourse and his betrayal and his crucifixion. So that we wouldn't be like that disciple Judas who didn't understand the cross and said, well, how much can I get? And be more like the disciple Mary and ask, how much can I give? Please pray with me. God in heaven, Lord, I pray that, that we would not be focused on self, that we would not be self-idolatrous, that our first concern would not be ourselves but our devotion to you. How are we treating the least of these? How are we lavishly showing our devotion to you, Lord Jesus? God, I pray that we would be willing to make the sacrifices for your kingdom, a kingdom that will never end, that we would sacrifice what we can now in a temporary world that you will make new so that we can be faithful disciples. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for this act that we're now going to partake in, this communion that you've given us so that we would never forget, Lord Jesus, what you have supplied for us through your death and your resurrection. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.